If you are joining us tonight for the first time, my name is Lee Gilligan, and I'm an assistant pastor here at Meadowbrook, and it's always just, it's an exciting and humbling thing to get to step up and to uh, fill the pulpit whenever Pastor Tim is gone. But I got to say, I've, I've taught a handful of Sundays now, and Sundays are, are interesting because it's, it's just like a rush. There's three services in a row, back to back, and it's, it's over like that, and there's a lot, of, a lot more people on Sundays, and, and so it's really a rush. It's exciting, but I really have a place in my heart for the Wednesday night crowd. There, there, there's something about Wednesday, the, the midweek service. You guys come expectant and ready and hungry, and I'm not saying that Sunday doesn't, but we have a consistent, solid Wednesday night crew, and, and I always love getting to, to step in and to share with you what God has put on my heart. You guys are kind of like, it makes my job easy. It's kind of like a, a mama bird who has worms and those little birdies are just ready to eat those worms up. I'm just throwing worms and y'all are eating it up and it, it, it makes it easy. That interaction, I feed off y'all and y'all feed off me. It's, it's a cool thing. So I'm glad to be here with the, the Wednesday night crew. Um, if you've been with us at all in the last going on three years, Wednesday nights we've called real life because we're talking about real life issues because we're real people going through real stuff. And it's important that we know what the Bible has to say about that and that we know we're not alone, that we have a source. We have um, a a book that that is full of promises to help us through those real life issues day to day. And so I'm glad to be here on this Wednesday night to kind of recharge in the middle of our week and share some things that I believe God has put on my heart. But but before we get into that, how many of y'all had a a great Thanksgiving? I, I know... At our house, we, we had a great Thanksgiving. We, uh, we did what you do on Thanksgiving. We, we rested. We watched football. We ate. Um, and then we, we did a little bit of shopping, but mostly ate. And, and this is what I love about Thanksgiving. It was already one of my favorite holidays for the, the food factor. But then once I got married, I realized you have in-laws, which means more family, which means multiple Thanksgiving feasts. And so, so you probably couldn't tell from, you know, my, my build, but I do, in fact, eat a lot. And, uh, and, and, and I keep be, being told that one day it'll catch up with me. But anyways, we got to enjoy multiple spreads on Thanksgiving, but we spent the bulk of the day at my parents' house and that, the, the Gilligan home front. We were all kind of there chilling and we had, we had a great spread. And if you name it, it was there. And my little boy, Gavin, he's at that age where he's, he's really in a growth spurt. And so he eats all the time. But the thing is, he never eats when we want to eat. And he never eats the same things that we eat. But, but he is eating. And so we, we, we lay out this spread uh, uh, on Thanksgiving dinner. And Gavin decides he doesn't want any of that. He did want to eat at the same time, but he didn't want that. He wanted strawberries and goldfish. <laughs> And, and normally, that, that's not as bad as, as the things he would normally want. I mean, that's somewhat healthy. But I'm looking at all this food, turkey and, and, and dressing and mashed potatoes and you name it. And he wants goldfish and strawberries. Um, I have a picture of him on Thanksgiving Day. There's, uh, that's my sister Elise, and she's eating dessert or something. And Gavin's kind of checking out what she's doing. If you were to uh, have a look into our house 90% of the time, this is what Gavin would be wearing. He's, he's a very free spirit. He's very comfortable in, in who he is. And, and so he loves sporting the, the undies. So that's Gavin on Thanksgiving. But we, we definitely had a good holiday. One thing that we always do on uh, the week of Thanksgiving, all the families together, and that's usually when we get together to take our pictures for our Christmas card. And so we're going to be handing out our, our Christmas card to all of y'all here in the next few weeks. So we got together this last Friday to uh, take those pictures. And I got to say, it wasn't our most successful photo shoot. 
I have two kids now, and, and they weren't really complying with, with the photo shoot and the, just the lighting and just a lot of things. It, it was kind of uh, not as easy as it's been in years past. And so we did get some money shots. We got some keepers. We got a Christmas card. But there were a few outtakes that, that I found funny, and I wanted to show you this one picture. All right, just look at it real quick. Now, now go to the, the, the second version of this. There we go. The first thing that stands out to me is the fact that my brother Josh is like five feet away from the rest of the family. He, he's always been the middle child, but I, I wasn't aware he was the black sheep. And then there you have Gavin, and I, I don't even know what he's doing. And so you, you wonder why it might have been a, a bit of a challenge for us to get a good shot. Those are a couple of the reasons right there. So I've talked about Gavin a bit. I always do my best to you know, talk to you all about my kids, keep you up to date. Well, I also want to show you a picture of my little Cora. She's seven months this week. And that shot on the left, that's her that day, the family shoot. And then that other one is this morning, actually, in front of our Christmas tree. So life is fun at the Gilligan house and uh, a lot to be thankful for. I mean, we've all got a lot to be grateful for. This season that we're in, Thanksgiving and Christmas, we always have a heightened awareness, a heightened sense of gratitude. But I always kind of get checked because it's like, yeah, this is a great season and we realize we have a lot to be thankful for. But guess what? We have a lot to be thankful for in the new year. And in the spring, in the summer, the fall, whatever time it is, we got a lot to be thankful for. Last week, Pastor Tim was talking to us about gratitude. And and he talked about how Jesus, God, our Savior, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's been been there for us in the past. He's here for us now. And he's going to be there for us, whatever we go through. And so on that fact alone, we will always have things to be thankful for. So much to be grateful for. And... um, so this past weekend, we kicked off this new series called The Greatest Story Ever. And, and specifically, you know, it's, it's the holidays. And so we're talking about Jesus' entrance into the world. And it was, in fact, his entrance into the world that would save the world. And, and that event is the center of the gospel. It's the center, really, of the Bible. That whole The Greatest Story Ever centers around that act. And so uh, it was actually Sunday. I was thinking, um, you know, I try to always have something prepared um, if, if Pastor Tim were to ask me to share. And, and so I was actually praying Sunday. Well, then yesterday, out of nowhere, yesterday morning, he asked if I wanted to cover tonight. And so ready in season and out, right? So it was cool because I was already kind of praying about, uh, you know, almost played that scenario in my head. What if he were to ask me right now, what would I talk about? So I had some things on my heart. And really tonight, I don't have a fancy title, nothing really mind-blowing. But tonight, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Is that okay? Can we talk about Jesus? You know, it's kind of become a joke, even, uh, even, you know, where my office is, I'm next to Pastor Huron and Pastor Scott, Pastor Ron and Pastor Musselman. And usually they'll ask me, hey, what, what are you going to be teaching on? And my joke, my answer is always Jesus, <laughs> the Bible, God, you know, <laughs> that, that's just kind of the funny cliche answer. Well, of course you would hope it would have to do with something from the Bible or it would have to do with Jesus. But no, tonight we're really, I want to talk to you about Jesus and specifically kind of a realization that I've had that really we determine what Jesus activity, what his involvement is going to be in our life. We all can give him a certain place in our life. And ultimately we determine how involved he's going to be in our life in our situations and in our families. Now, last week you might remember pastor Tim talked about, we can look back on our life and we can see seasons where maybe we were running from God and we see, wow, he showed his grace. 
He protected me that time. Maybe even this week that you've been hard-headed about something and, and you, you've not been complying maybe with what God wanted you to do, but yet he still took care of you. So yeah, he does always take care of us. But what I'm talking about is on a day-to-day basis, look at the big picture, your relationship with Jesus. He's not going to force himself upon you. We, we can either kind of hold Jesus back or we can welcome him in his fullness and all that he can bring to our life. And so tonight I want to talk about four phases of Jesus' involvement in our life. And I had my handy-dandy assistant, who's one of our next-gen interns, she uh, pre-wrote it for me because I've been embarrassed of my handwriting lately and I just didn't want to write it all out and take 45 seconds to write it in front of you and have the pressure of misspelling something. So tonight, this is, these are four phases that I want to talk to you about Jesus' involvement in your life. Now, let me let you know this. You're not going to open a systematic theology book and see, see this. This is kind of my own clever wordage. Notice they all end with Asian. I was trying to come up with an easy way to explain the ideas that I'm trying to get across. And so the four phases we're going to look at is invitation, examination, expectation, and remediation. And we're going to walk through each one of those tonight. But the first phase is invitation. And and I'm not talking about the initial invite when you choose to say, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus and I invite him into my life. I'm, I'm, I'm going beyond that. I'm talking more to the believer. You have a relationship with Jesus. And even though there's that initial invite, daily we have the opportunity to invite him into our life to be active in our situations. So that's phase one, invitation. I want you to go with me in your Bible to Mark, the book of Mark chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Now, this is the New King James Version, and uh, this will be on the screen, so you can follow with me there. It says, Then he went out from there, and he came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now pay attention to this part. It says, Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, the first part that really stands out in that, in that passage is that it says Jesus, the all-powerful, miracle-working Jesus, could do no mighty work there. That stumps a lot of people, or at least causes you to stop and say, what's going on here? Did his power subside? Did his ability cease? No, it didn't. What we have here is Jesus has, has grown up around these people, and now he's returned to his hometown. And they see that he's grown in his ministry and in his teaching and in his knowledge. And at first they're amazed, but then they begin to chatter and they say, wait, wait, wait. This is Jesus, the boy, the, the carpenter. And this is Mary's son. We, we know who this kid is. And, and they're familiar with him. And with that familiarity, um, there's a, a sense of honor that is lost or a sense of awe that is lost. And because there's no honor or awe, there's no expectation for what he can do in their midst. And because of that unbelief, because of that lack of expectation, it's not that his ability subsided, but he did no work because they did not believe. The ESV commentary says there was a fundamental rejection of him, that they actually rejected him. And I believe that familiarity is a dangerous thing because when you become too familiar with someone, like I said, there's a, a sense of honor or awe that is lost. 
And familiarity affects your level of expectation for what someone can do for you. Familiarity in a marriage is, is a dangerous thing. You know, my wife and I were celebrating five years of marriage this coming spring. And I know a lot of you have got a lot, lot more uh, on me when it comes to that. We pointed out someone a couple weeks ago who's celebrating 60-something years. And so I welcome any tips that you offer. I'm just five years into this game. But already, you, you realize marriage is work, okay? The, the, the puppy love stage passes. The engagement period's over. The honeymoon ends. And then one day you wake up, and guess what? Marriage is work. <laughs> marriage is work. It takes compromise. It takes give and take and uh, sacrifice and, and an ongoing dialogue and communication because it's not just about you. The, the two have become one, and you have to work together to make that a healthy marriage. But if I were to become familiar with my wife... And just say, oh, that's just my wife. That's just Katie. I begin to lose that sense of awe that I once had for her. I lose that sense of honor. And my level of expectation for what she can offer to my life is diminished. And we just go through the motions and the marriage is strained. We can't afford to lose, to become so familiar with someone that we lose that, that sense of awe. I was, I was thinking about this and, and there were some famous people that came to mind who um, are very successful and very influential and had you known them at their roots growing up, seeing where they came from, the people who knew them then were probably familiar with what their situation was and didn't have a high level of expectation for what these people would accomplish. First one I thought of was Oprah Winfrey. I don't even have to say Winfrey. I say Oprah, you know who I'm talking about. Household name, she's one of the most successful, forget women, she's one of the most successful people, period. And uh, Oprah came from horrible upbringing. She was abused physically and sexually, and she came from poverty, and there was so much she had to overcome to get to where she's at. And you look at her influence and her success, and the people who were with her then, familiar with that situation, probably didn't have a high level of expectation for what she would accomplish. I thought of Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time. I don't care if you're a LeBron fan or a Kobe fan. They don't compare to his greatness, Michael Jordan. And, and a, lot of, a lot of people know this. Maybe some of you don't. But his sophomore year of high school, uh, MJ didn't make the varsity team. They said he was too small and that he wasn't good enough. And so those guys who beat him out on, those, on that team, I don't know their names. Do you? They, they were probably pretty familiar with him and didn't have a high level of expectation for what he was capable of doing. He went on to be a standout player at the University of North Carolina and then was drafted in the NBA to lead the Chicago Bulls to six championship titles. And, but those people familiar with him probably weren't expecting that much. Uh, J.K. Rowling is another one I thought of. She's the author of the Harry Potter books. And regardless of your view on those books, that's not what I'm focusing on. It's, it's the, the point of this familiarity. When she wrote those books, she was a single mother. And the original transcripts were rejected by 12 different publishers before the book was finally picked up. Now you fast forward and look at the success of the Harry Potter franchise. The books are one of the best-selling series of books of all time. There's a theme park. There's the, the, the movies, which have made billions of dollars. But had you known this single mom trying to make ends meet and get her book accepted, you probably would have, that familiarity, the level of expectation wasn't there. Let's bring it a little more personal. Uh, pastor Tim, my father, a pastor of our church, he has joked before about being this insecure skinny little kid from Leesburg grew up in a trailer park and he says not you know he said this not all trailer parks are bad but mine was 
But God put in his heart a, a call, a vision to come to Ocala and plan a life-giving church. And he runs into people from time to time or he'll get in touch with someone he hasn't seen in years. And, oh, Tim Gilligan, what are you doing these days? And then they find out what, what he's doing. And it's just, you know, they never expected that the skinny boy from Leesburg would do that. And so what I'm saying, I know I'm using all these examples, but familiarity, if you become too familiar with someone and you lose a sense of awe, your level of expectation for what they can accomplish is diminished. And so tying that back with what we're talking about, Jesus, have we gotten to a place where talking to you as a believer, maybe you've grown up in the church, you know the name Jesus, you know the stories, you you know what he's about and what he's done, and you claim to be a follower of him, but that belief, that relationship has become so routine and so much a part of your life that you've lost a sense of all. You've become so familiar with Jesus that it's held you back from experiencing his fullness the way you once did. Has he just become Jesus? Has he just become the little flannel graph guy you saw in Sunday school? Or just the guy that you, as a, uh, as a younger person, invited into your heart? Is he just fire insurance for you? Do you just say, well, Jesus is in my heart, I'm not going to hell, but yet you don't really walk anything else out. I don't know where you're at, but have we let familiarity with this guy, Jesus, hold us back from this level of expectation for what he can do in our lives? So we're in the, we're in the Christmas season, and, and you've all heard this, what I'm about to read. Contrary to what you believe, this was not just Linus on a Charlie Brown Christmas. It was actually in the Bible. I found it in the New Testament. Uh, Luke 2, 13 through 14, says, Suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And so this is the night that Jesus was born. The savior is here. And this is such an awe inspiring, life changing event that even the angels descended and sang these songs of praise. Where is that sense of all today? We serve the same Jesus that they descended out of heaven to praise the same Jesus that Pastor Haran talked about the wise men approaching him with gifts This is the same Jesus we serve and have the freedom to have him in our life. But where's that same sense of awe? We live in this technology-saturated society where things that once inspired awe don't anymore. Where sites that you used to have to physically go to and see, now you can pull it up on your iPad and you feel like you've been there. Or or, or we live in this fast food, I want it now, Netflix society, where things have just become so immediate and so easy that it has affected our level of expectation in our relationships and consequently our relationship with Jesus. Has our relationship with him become too comfortable or too ordinary? And I want you to catch this. His activity in your life is not determined by who he is. He doesn't change. So his activity in your life is not determined by who he is, but it's determined by how you see him. It's determined by how you see him. Let's back up in in that that first verse I read where I said he could do no mighty works there. Jesus is not a manipulative God. He's not going to force himself upon us. We have a free will and we choose to have a relationship with him. What would that relationship be worth if he forced it upon us? And so when he came to his hometown, he wasn't going to force his miracles on a hostile, uh, skeptical audience. And the same is true with our day-to-day relationship with him. We decide his involvement. And this phase one, invitation, we invite him to be active in our lives. That's phase one. Invite him to be active in your life. That's a daily decision, a daily choice. 
Realizing the fullness that he can bring when you invite him in and give him that first place. This leads us to our second phase, examination. Examination. And by this, what I mean is that we study him. We get to know him. If I want to learn about something, what do I do? I'm going to research it. I'm going to study it out. If I want to get to know someone, I'm going to spend time with them. I'm going to talk to them. I want to know about their life. Well, the same is true with Jesus. If we want if we want to invite him in to be active, then it's time that we get to a place of a daily examination where we're studying the scriptures, where we are choosing to spend time with him, where we are waiting on him and getting to know him. What is Jesus all about? I don't care if you served him your whole life. If, 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 if you put him first and you pursue him, there's that constant, those light bulbs come on. And you're like, he just keeps getting better and better. He's so amazing. I want you to go to Matthew 16. Verses 13 through 16. It says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say you are John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And those were all popular messianic uh, expectations of who, he, who people thought he was. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and he said, You are Christ, which means the Messiah or the anointed one. You're the son of the living God. Now, here's the cool thing. He, he poses this question to his disciples. Each and every one of us, each and every one of you, we must answer that question. Who do we say that he is? Who is he to you? Who do you say that he is? And the scary thing is this, if you get that wrong, you get everything else wrong. If Jesus isn't in first place, Pastor Tim has taught us, then everything else is in the wrong place. He's got to be central. He's got to be first. He's got to be foundational. And, and, and Jesus is, who, who is he to you? Fill in that blank. If you get that skewed or if you, that's limited or if you're not seeing him for all that he can be in the light of the scripture, you're going to miss it. And that's a dangerous place to be. We've got to get that question right. Who do you say that he is? A.W. Tozer said, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to your mind when you, when you, when you think about Jesus, when you look at your relationship with him? And so I think if we're going to continually grow in our knowledge of him and, and seek him, the best place to do so is the written word of God, the inspired scriptures. That is, that is where God reveals himself to us. And realize that the Bible is for us, but it's about Jesus. That's the source, and that's where we need to go. And, and contrary to popular belief, Jesus doesn't just show up in a couple books in the New Testament. Jesus saturates all of Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, John Calvin said this. He said, we ought to read the Scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. Charles Spurgeon said, for every text in the scriptures, there is a road to the metropolis of the scriptures. That road is Jesus Christ. And so are we at a place where we read the Bible and we just hop around and, oh, well, that's not about Jesus or that's Old Testament, that's, that's law, that's Old Covenant, it doesn't really apply to today? Or do we look at every single passage with the mindset, with the filter of trying to find Jesus in those scriptures? When you do so, he leaps off the page. When Jesus came, he interpreted scripture in light of himself. 
And if you study the Old Testament, you see foreshadowing, you see references to Jesus in the Old Testament. He's all over the Bible. And so we've got to, we can't write off the Old Testament. If we're going to learn about Jesus, we've got to read the book cover to cover. It's relevant to our lives. If God said it, he's unchanging. It's timeless. It still applies. Read it in context and find out what that means today. And I believe it's a violation of our Christian faith to say that Jesus is not in the Old Testament. Either the Hebrew Bible is a part of the Christian Bible or it's not. And it is. That's the written word of God, Old and New Testament. You want to know the full meaning of the Old Testament? Then you've got to see the end of the story and vice versa. Genesis doesn't make sense apart from Revelation. We've got to look at the whole thing. You know, growing up I, in elementary school, I, you know, I had a lot of book reports. And I, I'm not a procrastinator now, but back then I, I definitely was. And so I remember like fourth grade, whatever grade it was, and like the night before, all of a sudden it's urgent. And I conveniently remind my parents, I have a book report due tomorrow. So they take me to Books A Million and I pick out some Hardy Boys book with like the coolest cover. I didn't care what was inside. That one looks good. And I'd get home and I'd go to my room and mom make, say, make sure you read that whole thing. You know, I, you better read the book. And of course, I do what most of us did. I turn it over. I read the one paragraph synopsis on the back. And then I write a, a book report on the book. And I thought I was fooling people. I thought I was clever. My teacher knew better. I probably wasn't the only one doing that. But we can't afford with the Bible to read a couple books, cut to the end, jump around. We can't afford to read the back and then think we understand it all. There's no cliff notes for the Bible, okay? There's commentary. There, there's study aids. There's ways to understand the context and who was writing and who they were writing to. And there's, there's guides to help you see Jesus and the scriptures. But we can't just leave it to that. We've got to read the Bible for ourselves, with, like Calvin said, with the express design of finding Jesus and the scriptures. And so many Christians, they get to this place where they say, oh, I want more. I want, I want to go deeper. I want more. I want, I want to know about grace. I want, I want to learn about the supernatural. I want to, uh, spiritual warfare or, or, or justice. Or we, we get focused on these tangents as if there's more. And since when is Jesus not enough? Those things apart from Jesus are worthless. Jesus makes everything else make sense. And so Jesus, there is nothing more than Jesus. Jesus has to be the core of our study, the core of our teaching. He is central. He is foundational for our walk as believers. And that has to be what fuels our study of the word. When you see the apostles' message, it wasn't theology. It wasn't doctrine. It wasn't rules. It was a person. That person was Jesus. Amen? Acts 5.42 says, Daily in the temple and in every house, They did not cease from teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I came across this quote from Soren Kierkegaard. It says, God's presence is not accidental in relation to his teaching, but it is essential to it. God's presence in human form, the humble form of a servant, Jesus, is itself the teaching. Jesus is the teaching. So step one, phase one, we invite him into our life to be active on a daily basis. And so to keep that going, to keep that invitation running, we've got to get to know him. We've got to examine him, study his life. Where do we do that? The Bible, the whole Bible, 
Old Testament, New Testament, every page. And when we approach it with that goal, with that motive of finding Jesus, like I said, he leaps off the pages. He is in the scriptures. It is the greatest story ever told. And that's how we learn more about our Savior. So then when you begin to know about Jesus and you see all that he is and all that he can be and all his promises and all that he has done and performed and still does today, that heightens our sense of expectation, the next phase. Phase three, expectation. By this, I mean that we believe in him, and when we believe, we then receive. Now, I'm not talking about a, a name it and claim it, health and wealth, prosperity gospel. I think the world's had enough of that, and I don't think that's what re- Jesus really came to establish. Yes, he wants us to prosper. Yes, he wants us to be healthy, and he wants us to have what we need. But prosperity and name it and claim it was not what he came to do. But what I'm talking about is the power in confession. The, the, a few weeks back, I spoke on a Sunday on the power of our words. And our words can speak life or our words can speak death. And so when we're speaking life over our situation, what is the life that we're speaking? Is it our own good ideas and feelings? Or is, it, is, it, is it his promises? The fact that for every problem, there is a promise. Speaking life over our situation. Speaking out and re- uh, realizing the power that is confession when we believe in Jesus. And when we call on him, we will receive Again, this goes back to phase one, invitation. It's inviting him to be active in our life. So I have a few promises here that I, that I want to share with you. This is just a few that are my favorite and that stand out, but you can find these throughout the Bible that show there's a very real correlation. When we ask, we receive. When we believe, he's going to perform on our behalf. So here we go. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? John fourteen thirteen through 14 says, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. First John three twenty one through twenty four, beloved, if your if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us this commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now, let me stop on that one for a minute. It says, if your heart does not condemn you, we have confidence towards God. Basically, if boldly approach God in prayer, that, that that's what I take from that. And then, and then, what you ask, you will receive if you keep his commandments. And it's simple. It says, what is his commandment? Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. I believe if we are seeking God, it's not saying we have to be perfect, but saying we boldly approach and if we're truly seeking his will for our life, we ask anything in his name, we will receive. He's going to perform on our behalf. Last one I want to share with you. First John five fourteen through 15 it says, now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. 
I don't know about y'all, but it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty clear there. If we ask, we receive. If we knock, the door is open. If we seek, we're going to find. If we boldly approach him in prayer, he is going to perform on our behalf. Are we at that level of expectation where we believe in Jesus and we're expecting him to move in our situations? This brings us to our fourth and our final phase, remediation. Remediation. Now, I'm going to be honest. With remediation, what I'm talking about is what you need. And I'll get to that in a minute. But when I first hear the word remediation, I think of mold. <laughs> um, I never cared about mold till I was a homeowner. I had no reason to. Then once you're a homeowner and you sit there at closing and you sign your life away, you all of a sudden are responsible for this huge investment. And so as a homeowner, you're responsible if something breaks or if you're to repair something, that all falls on you. It's your responsibility. And so I'm the type, I'm a, I'm a WebMD guy. Do y'all know what WebMD is? For those of you who don't, don't go to it. It's, it's this site where you can go and you can enter your age and your sex and you enter some information about yourself and then you can select what your symptoms are. And then as you do, it generates a list of what your possible conditions might be. So I've had times where the hypochondriac in me comes out and something's wrong with my knee. And the next thing you know, I've diagnosed myself with cancer. And it's just, you, it's not the case, but you just see all these things and your mind goes crazy and you start to worry. Well, I've now found that you can WebMD house situations. Uh, a few months back, I, I'm not a worrier, I'm really not. But a few months back, our, our daughter Cora was having some allergy issues. We didn't know what it was at the time. It ended up being our dog. And uh, actually, we ended up giving that dog to a family from our small group. Life change happens in the context of relationships. <laughs> Anyways, back on track. We, we gave the dog away. That was the source of the allergies. However, I just got on this thing where I thought it was mold. So what do I do? I start reading about mold. I'm WebMDing my house. And I'm realizing, oh my gosh, there could be mold growing. And I don't know it. Because mold grows under sinks. It grows behind walls. And you don't realize it's there. And the next thing that, that you know, it's, it's, it's overtaken everything. And it's an extreme health hazard. And so I was convinced there's got to be this mold in this place that I can't see. And I'm about ready to like order this mold inspection. And it was my dog the whole time. There's no mold. But when there's mold... There's a process known as remediation, where someone comes in, an expert, and they can assess the damage. They can clean it up. They can gut it. They can cut it out. They do whatever they have to do to remove that mold. And so when I talk about remediation, really the word itself just means the act or the process of remedying something. But I thought mold was kind of a cool analogy because there may be things in your life that you didn't know were there. And they've grown to something big, and now you're feeling the effects of it. Maybe that thing needs to go. Or maybe there's something that you need, and you don't know where to find it. But whatever it is you're looking for, whatever it is that you're expecting and you're believing to receive, guess what? Guess who that answer is? That remedy, the remediation, is Jesus. Jesus is the solution. He's the answer. He's the cure. He's the antidote for whatever it is you're going for, going through. Whatever it is that you need, Jesus is that remedy. And I heard this quote recently from a pastor. It says, when it comes to Jesus, what you see is what you get. So what do you see? When you, when you look at your relationship with Jesus, when you look at your view of your Savior, what is it that you see? Do you see a flannel graph Jesus who serves as fire insurance? Or do you see an all-powerful, limitless advocate? was fully capable to do all that you could ever ask or believe and beyond. 
What do you see? What is it that you need? Who do you say that he is? Maybe tonight you need a father or a healer or a friend or a redeemer, a comforter, a forgiver, a provider. What is it? What is it you're expecting? He's that remedy. He's that answer. He's that solution. And tonight what I've talked about, this may have, this may, might have seemed um, elementary for some. Maybe it seems uh, too simple. But I think a lot of times, and I already said this, we tend to overcomplicate Jesus. Or really overcomplicate uh, what it is we believe. We, we make it about so many other things. And if we're going to be in this season where we're simplifying and we're looking at what we have to be thankful for and we're boiling down, what is this season about? Emmanuel, God with us, the entrance of our Savior to the world. That's a person. Amen. And that person is Jesus. Amen. We determine his involvement in our life. And like I said, these phases, it's not systematic theology. I wanted you to easily remember this. But there's the invitation, inviting him to be active in our life. Examination, getting to know him better. Expectation, believing in him. And receiving that remediation, that remedy, that answer. What is it you need him to do in your life? He's that and more. Give him rightful place in your life. You determine his involvement. Did you get anything at all out of this tonight?